Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 19th, 2021. We're 10 days away from COPE. 26 in Glasgow, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Um, according to the BBC, um, 25,000 people are supposed to show up. Sounds like a, a Glasgow soccer game. Hopefully there'll be less violence. Uh, but the BBC, of course, asks whether so many people need to show up and whether anything's going to be done if 25,000 people show up. John Kerry, the ultimate windbag, who is supposed to be representing the United States when it comes to this stuff, perhaps appropriately said in his own senatorial way, Glasgow COPE 26 is the last best hope for the world. I think I'm not a great fan, as you can tell, of Kerry. If uh, he's the last best hope for the world, I think we're doomed. Uh, it seems as if we're pretty much doomed anyway. Scientists now have agreed that 99% or 99.9% .9 of scientists, I don't know about the other 0.1, agree that the climate emergency is caused by humans. That 0.1 is probably employed by Trump or Putin or something. Uh, the Russians are particularly responsible for the destruction of the environment, particularly irresponsible international operators, According to the Post today, they've uh, allowed uh, methane leaks at the planet's peril. The Americans are no better, really, when it comes down to it. We're seeing all sorts of drama when it comes to Joe Manson, who represents a coal state, West Virginia, who now is undermining the entire climate initiative. So things are pretty dire, as you can tell. Uh, and it's a good time to talk about how to Save the World. Uh, there's a new book out, The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050. And the book is, uh, I think, as in some ways as apocalyptic as, um, as I sound like in this introduction. Um, it's co-authored by a professor at the uh, University of Virginia Business School, Michael Lennox, and I'm thrilled that Michael is joining me from his home in Charlottesville, Virginia, the beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Michael, am I being unfair to old John Kerry? I don't know how old he is. He looks about 150. <laughs> uh, perhaps not. I mean, uh, as we've seen with the, the Copes in the past, um, sometimes promises, very rarely promises delivered. Um, I might share some of your cynicism about what is actually going to be accomplished at, uh, uh, in Scotland this upcoming week. And uh, my old friend, not that I know her, and she's not very old, uh, Greta Thunberg has already been complaining about the blah, blah, blah of leaders when it comes to the climate crisis. There's certainly going to be a lot of blah, blah, blah at uh, uh, COPE26. Your book, Michael, though, it is I, I hope at least a little bit more intelligent than just more blah, blah from old guys like John Kerry. You begin the book by saying, imagine it's the year 2050. You travel to work in your electric vehicle. At home, the, cow, the, the car is powered by a 
solar panel on your house, which is connected to a smart grid that trades electricity so that you have electricity on cloudy days and you power others when you have access. The home itself is made of and filled with low carbon materials, mini mill produced steel, green cement, sustainable timber and green plastics. The food on your table comes from sustainable farming that minimizes the need for nitrogen-based nitrogen fertilizers and includes protein from sources uh, other uh, than beef. Um, you have uh, an image of this, which is very attractive. Uh, um, in the book, Michael, uh, The Decarbonization Imperative, you're imagining a world in 2050. You're saying we have to get to that world. Is this just more blah, blah? Is this utopian or is it realizable? Well, you, you'll probably tell from the book and even my demeanor that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist. Um, not to say that this is going to be easy in any way, um, but we've got to get on this because by going beyond, you know, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees Celsius warming, um, the implications get even more dire uh, and the impacts could be nonlinear in, in scale. And so, you know, try we must. Um, I, I think what we're highlighting in the book is that from a technology standpoint, we're starting to get a sense of, of how we might get there, uh, what that world might look like. And that's obviously what we're trying to lay out in our very first paragraph there. Uh, and you have um, a very hopeful diagram. I mean, all theory, of course, <laughs> beginning in 2021, everything goes downhill, at least uh, in diagrammatic form from there. Um, how are we going to get to 2050? How, how is that hockey stick going to go down, Michael? Well, let's first observe that if we don't start making significant reductions in global emissions in the next couple of years, that 2050 date gets closer and closer. And the IPCC is already suggesting that maybe 2050 is, uh, is, is too, too far away and it actually has to be shorter than that. Um, so every year we go with increasing emissions, that date gets closer and closer. Um, so, and uh, you know as well as I do that that's going to happen. You know as well as I do that nothing's happened. Joe Manchin now is holding it up. We're, you know, we're relying on yeah. John Kerry, of all people, to get things done, a man who spent his whole life failing. Uh, let's talk about decarbonization. You say that um, if we're going to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And you note in the book, it's all around us. It's all around me in California, the forest fires. It's all around you on the East Coast with the flooding and then the hurricanes. Um, if we're going to avoid the worst effects of climate change, which are here and now, we're going to need to effectively decarbonize the global economy by 2050. Well, what exactly does that mean, decarbonize? That, of course, is yeah. the title of your book, The Decarbonization right. Imperative. So at the end of the day, it means getting to what we would call net zero emissions. So the earth has natural processes by which it absorbs greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide in particular, things of course like forests and the ocean even absorb those. But since the industrial age, we've been producing uh, more than net zero emissions from uh, primarily the burning of fossil fuels. And so where we need to get to is get back to a point where we're kind of in balance with uh, those natural processes that absorb uh, greenhouse gases. Um, and you can think of it as a stock and flow problem that as we continue to admit, we're working off this stock of greenhouse gas uh, emissions that are increasing the concentrations in the atmosphere. 
And when we pass the certain threshold, then what the climate scientists tell us is that our best opportunities to, again, keep warming to two degrees Celsius will, will have passed us by. So what we do in the book is we go sector by sector and look at what we call scope one emissions, where emissions are actually occurring to try to at least start to get our hands around the breadth of the problem. Right. Um, and you're, um, you, you break it down into the energy sector, transportation, industrials, building, agriculture. And here you have for people watching um, uh, um, a diagram of the annual global greenhouse gas emissions, 25% electricity, 10% other energy, 24% agriculture, 6% buildings, 14% transportation, 21% industrial. So it's relatively evenly broken down in those sectors. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. Well, one of the things we always highlight is it seems like so much attention's on transportation vehicles and then, of course, electrical generation. But together, they don't even make up half of all emissions. I think the two sectors that probably get, uh, unfortunately, not enough attention right now are industrials. Uh, in particular, there are things like the production of steel and cement. Right. So uh, that's 21 percent. Right. That's 21 percent. It also includes manufacturing more generally. But those two sectors in particular, uh, petrochemicals is another one um, producing plastics and uh, any variety of products in our global economy uh, is another large one there. And then agriculture. Um, and you do hear this in, you know, uh, popular culture about livestock and beef, but uh, it's accurate. Uh, it is a significant uh, emitter. And if we're going to get to net zero again, that's net zero globally. Uh, we need to make some significant changes in that in that sector. Mike, you're also the author of Can Business Save the Earth? Innovating Our Way to Sustainability, or again, I think a co-author. Um, you're a professor of innovation at the University of Virginia UVA Business School, and you address this issue in the book. Um, you, you, when it comes to business saving the world, you acknowledge that it's not exactly going to be business, um, but you say we believe that markets function within a broader set of institutional structures that establish the rules of the game and determine how they function. The success of renewable energy and the rise of electric vehicles would not be possible without any number of institutional interventions in the market, from subsidizing of public R&D at universities to the underwriting of risk in entrepreneurial startups. So what is the balance between regulation and innovation. You quote my old friend, uh, Mariana Mazzucciuto, who has done a lot of work in this area. Are you tilting towards regulation or innovation? Or can't you, can you really not talk about either words independently of the other? I would lean towards the latter. And I think that's some of the kind of uh, false dichotomies we've kind of draw sometimes in these debates about it's either about markets or it's about government or it's about society and markets. You know, markets function, again, within a larger, larger what we call institutional envelope. Uh, there's, there's really no other way to think about them. Um, my background actually is in systems engineering. So I very much take a systems perspective on how markets work. But again, thinking about this broader institutional structure. Take innovation. You know, again, one of our critical arguments here is that we don't see how we make progress on climate change without significant disruptive innovation across these sectors that we were just talking about here. So sorry, I, I, sorry to interrupt, yeah. Michael, and, and I apologize for missing this one. Are you, are you on the innovation or the regulation camp? Which one do you come down on more? Well, that's what I was going to get to. So I'm, I come down on the innovation camp, 
However, very much in the mindset that innovation is driven in part and, and structured by that broader institutional envelope. So there are numerous things that the government can do to help generate private sector innovation along the lines we need. The most obvious one that most economists advocate for is putting a price on carbon. Uh, and so by doing so, you start to create the economic incentives for innovation across these different sectors. I think one of our big viewpoints is, yes, let's put a price on carbon, but there are literally hundreds of other levers that can be pulled uh, that need to be pulled if we're going to actually make the changes as quickly as we need to make them um, given kind of the pressing challenges. And so it includes things like subsidizing R&D, especially basic forms of R&D. It's university research. It's helping drive commercialization by um, anything from uh, helping sponsor, you know, uh, new ventures uh, and, and helping with them getting over kind of the valley of death of scaling that many of them face. Uh, it includes, you know, traditional forms of regulation. Uh, and we can think about how that impacts markets. If we more heavily regulate, let's say, fracking, it you know, increases the cost of natural gas. That makes renewable energy more economically viable at that point. So again, we, we, we don't, you know, we say repeatedly, there is no single silver, silver bullet here and that we're looking for a, a whole technology portfolio here, a technology policy that we should pursue in the U.S. and overseas to try to get these transitions to happen quickly. Yeah, and you have, um, at the end of the book, you lay out five overall stretches, uh, launch a national moonshot on clean technology, create a national clean tech bank, energize next generation technology development, build the utility of the future, declare a new deal for clean. But what's depressing about all this, Michael, is it all requires political initiative and Biden can't even get past Joe Manchin. So how realistic is any of this? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you think about the dynamics of disruption. You know, one of the things I, I always mention is th this is this is just true of market based economies. We have episodes of disruptive technologies come in and replace the old. The way those are framed and understood um, get very political, as you can imagine. So think the example of Blockbuster Video and Blockbuster Video went out of business. Over 100,000 jobs were lost right now in the United States. There's roughly 50,000 jobs in the coal industry. Yet we talk a lot about the loss of those coal jobs. We didn't really talk much about this of the blockbuster video jobs, which actually far exceeded what we have in coal industry. And oh, by the way, if you look at solar right now, we're talking half a million or more jobs currently in the U.S. economy uh, for that industry sector. Or you could even talk, I wrote a book about the shift from Kodak to Instagram. I mean, when Kodak oh, shut down, yeah. 30,000 yes. people lost their job and Instagram, when they sold to Facebook, employed 15 people. But uh, there were no Joe Manchins uh, uh, re representing the Kodak workers. So are you saying the, the, the core problem is a political problem? Well, what I was going to say is I think uh, what we see with disruption is the gains and the, the pain associated with it aren't uniformly distributed. Right. And so. Yes, if you have a lot of coal jobs within your district, you could be a loser here in terms of this type of transition. Um, in the same way that, you know, Nantucket was a loser when we moved from whale oil to kerosene, right? Um, one of the things that was on that list you mentioned was this idea of, you know, job creation. You know, how can we create 
um, a vision for where we're going that creates winning opportunities for everyone. But wait, uh, all this is it's, in it's, the context yeah. of an, you know, I would understand if we had a hundred years to do this and it wasn't a climate emergency, but mm. none of this is realizable, certainly in the next five years, unless there is a major catastrophe of some sort where everyone changes their mind, an invasion from another planet or a nuclear war or, or, or an, a, a really radical economic crisis. So how realistic is it? I mean, you, you, you end the book, um, you say, and, and you, you talked about this, the silver bullet before, none of this will be easy, to put it mildly. There is no single silver bullet. Decarbonization will require a comprehensive effort across nations and markets. Now is the time to band together as global citizens to solve this problem. The global pandemic of 2020 has increased awareness of our connected humanity, whatever that means. Uh, perhaps this will be the catalyst needed to motivate global coordination and action. We put our faith in the human capacity for innovation and change to lead us to a brighter and more sustainable future. Isn't that Greta's blah, blah, Michael? I don't know what the other alternative is, right? Well, the other alternative is is the end of the, the, the planet or certainly the end of many species, perhaps even our own. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we could we could acknowledge defeat and give up. Um, it's, that's not what I think we should do. And I think we've got to try. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not suggesting I'm, we shouldn't try. And, and I'm not, bla- I'm, you know, I'm not blaming you for all this. It's obviously not your fault. And you're doing your best with this book, which is an interesting book. It just is so, you know, I feel I don't usually feel like an 18 year old girl, but I really feel like Greta in my frustration over all this. I, earlier today, I interviewed a woman, um, Misha. Cherry, she has a new book out, The Case for Rage, while anger is essential to anti-racist struggle. But I think the case for rage is equally compelling when it comes to the environment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we were trying to do with the book is twofold. One was understand fundamentally like what it actually is going to take us to get this there, right? And that's the idea of doing a sector-based approach, understanding some of the technological shifts and the like. The second part was trying to understand how we can make progress on this and understand this as not some uh, radical shift, if you will, that's going to destroy the economy and undermine our quality of life, but that this could actually be a positive for society beyond, of course, the climate change issue that we're trying to address here. But in addition, this is about the technologies and the industries of the future, right? This is about economic growth and job creation. Uh, and, and again, there is this dichotomy that is framed here that it's kind of an all, you know, winner take all battle between markets and climate change. And I think it's the wrong way to frame the problem, the wrong way to think about it. And it causes some of the divisiveness we see in the political arena. Again, I'm not Pollyanna here. I'm not suggesting that, um, you know, just by highlighting some of these opportunities, suddenly the political will will magically, you know, erupt here. Uh, as you pointed out, you know, politics is always local and you do have people who see either incorrectly or see a narrow view of the world and they're kind of fighting for that slice. Um, we need to have the political will to overcome that localism if we're going to if we're going to have any chance of uh, of addressing this issue. Michael, earlier this year, um, the the U.S. and China issued a joint statement addressing the climate crisis. 
The Chinese seem to be acting in some ways more aggressively, even if much of their actions seem self-serving. Is this ultimately an argument against democracy? Might democracy itself fail on this issue? Well, this is this is uh, maybe beyond my area of expertise. But what I will well, but you're you're writing about this stuff, so you're implying that unless there's a political will, we're going to fail. So you have to address it. We all have to address it. Yeah, I think, uh, is there any reason to believe that an authoritarian government will be more concerned and more benevolent towards climate change than a democratic one? I, I don't think history has shown that to be uh, the case. Um, I also think that what we have seen repeatedly is um, uh, state ownership of the means of uh, industry um, tends to quell innovation and can have a whole bunch of perverse side effects. Um, th this is my point again, that we have to think of it as a system. We have to think about, yes, there are challenges in the market-based system, but there's also um, opportunities there, opportunities to leverage the kind of innovation engine that markets provide. Um, so I'm, I'm not leaning towards the idea of an authoritarian government taking control of the means of production as the solution for climate change. Um, that is assuming a level of benevolency uh, that I don't think we've seen in history. Even, I mean, the Chinese one is obviously a particularly unpleasant authoritarian government. What about a Singapore-style technocracy? Again, you know, I think we have to look at the innovation side, and this is one of the trade-offs. Well, the Singapore, the Singapore model is extremely innovative. Singapore now is the richest country in the world. They don't have democracy, and they do things right. I'm not suggesting this, but more and more people are coming around to understanding that Something has to be done, and it's not happening in democratic society. Yes. Um, well, again, I, I think this is kind of beyond my level, but uh, uh, from what evidence we see, I'm sticking with democracy. Good. Uh, well, you, you, yeah. Michael, you have this lovely image of the world in 2050. If we can get it right, this, this, this uh, virtuous circle uh, or cycle, whatever it's called, of, of everything working together. Uh, vehicles, electricity, uh, buildings, agriculture. What will the world look like in 2050 if we get it completely wrong, if none of this stuff is addressed? Well, the thing, you know, the thing we uh, talk about towards the end of the book and what I worry most about is, of course, there's, there's the direct implications of climate change, right? Um, rising sea levels, increase in extreme weather, droughts and the like that are occurring. I think the, uh, the thing I worry most about are kind of what you might call the secondary impacts, uh, the political social impacts. Um, if you think about uh, sea level rise, you know, imagine 50 million people in Bangladesh being displaced by rising sea levels that causes a refugee crisis into India that destabilizes the government there uh, and God forbid creates some tension with let's say uh, another nuclear power like uh, Pakistan. Um, and if that sounds, you know, alarmist, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the civil war in Syria rose because of a um, year long drought mm. that they had had that had led to the rise in food prices. Yeah, we, uh, we've covered that. And Thomas yeah. Friedman has written some good stuff on this. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly uh, uh, and, and in fact, in our we I had an interview with Janine Di Giovanni, who's a journalist who was covering the, the collapse of Christian civilization in the Middle East, and she traced it back to that too so yeah and again it you know you think about the, the you know the uh, climate refugees 
Um, you know, we, we, we could have even a, a greater crisis of people trying to, you know, come up the southern border would be my expectation as climate change effects are become more pronounced. Um, again, all of these can be very uh, destabilizing, to say the least. You have uh, five next steps. Um, very briefly, uh, you, you talk about the, at the end, the accelerating current threats towards net zero emission technologies and electrical generation, fast turnover to electric vehicles, electrification of industrial production, um, uh, encourage building electrification and invest in education and infra uh, education and infrastructure, which is always the fifth thing in a five list because no one can ever, <laughs> you know, we always dump everything on the teachers. The education sector, as you know, is in is enough crisis anyway. Of those five, if we had to just focus on one to get it right, which would you begin with, Michael? Well, as you can tell, I think from a technology standpoint, driving what are now fossil fuel using um, industry sectors towards electrification, ultimately then we have to decarbonize electrical generation. So I would start there. Um, the positive news, you know, what we've seen over the last decade is a drastic reduction in the price of solar and wind production. Uh, so this is a very positive thing that we're seeing here. Um, but we're not out of the woods on this one. Uh, there are obviously intermittency issues with uh, renewables that will need to be solved, most likely using batteries in combination with kind of these smart grid possibilities where we're linking a very distributed generation um, model where we have solar on homes and on retail establishments and the like into a dynamically trading environment. Um, that's going to take massive infrastructure investment, first to build out the renewable capability, but also to update, update for example, here in the US, our electrical grid uh, and put in what, what we would call smart grid solution. Um, electric utilities are a little unique in that um, they typically are heavily regulated in terms of the pricing side of the market, at least in regulated uh, jurisdictions. So there are opportunities here, but it goes back to what you've been pushing me on, which is the political will. Do we have the political will uh, to invest in the infrastructure needed to make the transition uh, for, for electrical generation. Well, hopefully, Michael, people watching, you've made them nervous, which is the goal of a book like this, to address these really important issues. People will be watching, potentially entrepreneurs, um, citizens, um, and uh, in, uh, investors. Uh, what can we all do? I mean, it's all too easy to... You know, this is all about human agency. This is all about this massive uh, tsunami coming that we all feel in, in, in increasingly powerless in the face of. Yeah. What can we each do? Do we, do we, do we get a renewable um, solar panel? Do we get solar panels on our roofs? Do we buy an electric car? Do we elect uh, politicians who focus on this? What is the... Yeah. What can we all do to address this stuff? Yeah, I think the, the answer is all of the above that you were just naming there. Um, I, I often get the, you know, what's the one thing you can do as an individual uh, from a consumption standpoint, usually highlight uh, of beef and, and the consumption of beef, because again, that's a particular vexing problem that there's not an easy technological solution, but there's an easy uh, solution, which is substitute away from it. Um, and so that, that would be number one on my list as an individual. Um, as a citizen, like you said, you know, use your voice, uh, um, 
talk to, you know, in, in the, for elected officials and policy circles and the like, uh, and, and demand that we, uh, that we address this issue, for example, here in the U.S. and in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and then to put a maybe a more uh, optimistic spin, you know, you mentioned there are innumerable opportunities for innovation, entrepreneurship. Um, there are, and one of the things we highlight in the book, there is a lot going on, which is, you know, at least a little bit hopeful to see. Um, uh, interesting innovations across all of these sectors we look at. Um, the, the real challenge, of course, again, is can we scale this up in time uh, to hit these, you know, impending deadlines that we're facing with climate change. Michael, we had uh, David Cutler, who is Obama's um, health czar on the show. He's written a new book or co-authored a book on cities. He was calling for a Marshall Plan for cities. We had Fiona Hill, who has acquired a great deal of um, notoriety on the right and um, for her for her role in the impeachment of um, impeachment trial of Donald Trump. She compares what's happening in America to Russia. She calls also for a Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan, I'm always dubious of Marshall Plans because when people call for them, it means they have no idea of, 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 of how to deal with the problem. Uh, but do we need a Marshall Plan for all this? Or, or maybe, maybe we need to reinvent a Marshall Plan for the 21st century and call it something else? Yeah, we uh, we we use more of an analogy, uh, the the moonshot uh, under the Kennedy, right. which is a Silicon Valley term, a Google term. Right, right. Um, and depending on how we interpret the Marshall Plan, um, there is really interesting questions of how we do this globally. Um, and I don't know if you saw recently, Larry Fink from BlackRock was making an argument that the industrialized nations need to be uh, sponsoring at the rate of one hundred billion dollars, I think, per year. Uh, investment in developing economies and other parts of the world if we're going to make uh, this transition. So there's interesting debates and discussions about what role uh, more developed economies have and developed countries have for the rest of the world. Um, I, I think, again, you know, we, we, we are going to need significant investment uh, and, and it's going to have to have some leadership from uh, the federal government um, from from even the global community. And that's, as we know, very, very hard uh, to coordinate, uh, very hard to to get action. You know, as we started, you know, with COP starting, um, I'm, I'm not optimistic that there will be anything groundbreaking that comes out of. Uh, right. And meanwhile, start. Michael, the most innovative people on our planet, Larry, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk, are, are, are planning the evacuation of our planet. Should that yeah. be allowed? Do we need to regulate them in terms of diverting their resources, their innovation, and above all else, their capital to saving this planet? Uh, I'm not sure I would say that we need to uh, regulate them on what they're, they're doing. We can maybe use public persuasion to uh, have them maybe reconsider. Um, but take, take Musk as an example here. Uh, Electric vehicles had actually been around since the, you know, the earliest stages of, of automobiles. Um, they had fallen out of favor starting in the 1930s and, and laid dormant for, for many, many decades. So there had been fits and starts like the famous GM uh, electric vehicle in the 90s. Um, not to give all the credit to Tesla, because I think there was a, a number of different players who've been pushing that technology along. But it's a good example of uh, an entrepreneur with a vision driving us down the learning curve. And now, presumably, it's the, probably the sector I'm most optimistic about, uh, leading to what looks like will be a disruption uh, in electrification of vehicles, hopefully over the next decade here. Um, and again, 
I don't want to buy into the hero myth that the one individual brought this about, but I think it's a good example of, of how a visionary can help at least um, help motivate some of these changes. And again, this was a mix of there was definitely the role of federal policy and supporting Tesla and others and making this happen. So it, it's not just the one person on their own, um, but it is a good example of, of how it can start to shift markets and shift um, the possibility set. Yeah, maybe we should send uh, Elon Musk to Glasgow rather than John Kerry. You've been a good sport, um, uh, Michael. Uh, I'm not blaming you for all this. I'm just increasingly frustrated. But your book, yeah. The Decarbonization Imperative, is a really accessible, interesting, wise, comprehensive, and honest look at our crisis and how we're going to get out of it. I have to admit, I'm even less optimistic having read it, but that's not your fault. You've done your best. You've been honest. You've laid out the challenges and opportunities. So congratulations on the book. Well, uh, what you. else should people be reading in these apocalyptic times as we as we look at our watches uh, and, and, and figure out we've got about 30 years left on the planet, Michael? <laughs> well, uh, I think we have more than 30 years on well, the planet. Well, maybe 35. Yeah, I I always say, by the way, on this question, like, I actually think the, the human species has proven uh, incredibly resilient. Uh, I think we'll we will survive. Um, yeah. The question is, what's the quality of our life? on? And by the way, I had Parag Kanner. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he, he has a new book out, Move. He's an old friend of mine. He's a Singapore based uh, futurist. He says all this is going to result in places like Canada. And, and Siberia being more inhabitable. So he seems to think that there'll be as many opportunities in terms of land and moving in the future. So maybe our, our, our story will just go on. It will just be a different chapter. But anyway, what, what other books would you suggest? Well, I was going to say one of my other interests and one of the other things I teach is, uh, is around digital technology and, and what we might broadly call the digital age. And uh, that itself, as you may imagine, is also fraught and has many uh, you know, sure, yes. possibilities, but also downsides as well. So I recently read uh, Stuart Russell's Human Compatible. Uh, uh, Russell is, a, is an artificial intelligence expert. Uh, and he does a really good job talking about some of those um, concerns, some of the pitfalls of, of AI uh, and kind of the future that's that's coming for us here. So, um, yeah, you know, so if, if, if the climate doesn't get us, then the AI will. We had Jeanette Winterton, Winterson actually on the show recently, who's more of an optimist. We'll have to get, what was his name? Stuart Russell? Stuart Russell. Stuart Russell, he, he also, I think if, I, if I'm interpreting his work correctly, is not as worried about like what we call the singularity, this idea that a Terminator yeah. future is going to, to occur here. Um, I love one of his points is the problem with AI is not that it's going to decide to do something we didn't want it to. It's going to do exactly what we told it to do. And we're not going to quite put the bounds on it in the way that we should have, uh, but it's going to execute it perfectly. Actually, thinking about it in that way, uh, maybe the only way to fix climate is AI. And that might be the subject of another conversation, even another book. But um, And I will say, book, by the way, that that I think there is there is definitely some. Uh, right. Well, you better get writing, Michael, because a lot of people are probably <laughs> writing about that. The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050. It's by... Michael Lennox and Rebecca Duff. Um, congratulations to Rebecca too. Michael, good job. And I, and I said, I appreciate you've been very good humored. I haven't, my, my criticism is not directed at you. It's at the rest of us, but congratulations on the book. Keep fighting, keep reminding people 
of this imperative. It's essential. And, and it's great that guys like you are doing such a, a coherent job. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me.